All right, folks. We're going to be in Matthew 18 again this week. It's where we were last week. We'll start in verse 21, right where we began a week ago. And we'll work our way through uh, verse 35, just as we did last week. If you weren't here last week, that's totally fine. Uh, We are in the second of a four-part series on forgiveness. And we tried to make the distinction last week. Hopefully this was clear to you, but if it's not, I guess this is my second chance to make it clear. Uh, We're not just talking about feeling forgiving towards other people. I think as Christians, we probably know what that's like. We know what it's like to not feel that way. We maybe don't know what to do about it when we don't feel that way. Instead, we're trying to have a conversation about forgiveness as a discipline. Forgiveness as something that you choose to engage with when you don't feel like doing it because you believe that if you do it consistently, you will change. Not the person that needs to be forgiven will change. You will find some new capacity within yourself to be forgiving, to be loving, to be generous that you didn't have prior to that. So uh, last week, we tried to answer two questions. We started with the question, why should I forgive? And Jesus answers that question for Peter very early here in the passage we're about to read in Matthew 18. So you'll see that again. And then I tried to break uh, the second question into four parts. So the second question was, how can I forgive? If I know why I should, then how do I begin to take those steps? And I tried to give you those four steps, and I won't reiterate them now. Uh, But if you missed that one and you'd like to go back and find that teaching again, it's on our website. Uh, I did find out last night we had an issue I guess, with the podcast episode, so that will come up soon. We're trying to get that fixed, but I know some of you guys tried to tune in during the week last week and weren't able to do that, so I apologize. We're going to try to get that fixed. This week, here in week two, we're going to zero in on the centrality of God in human forgiveness. So what do I mean by that? I mean, and I intend to argue today in a way that I hope is compelling to you, that in order for you to be forgiving according to the Bible, according to Jesus' standard of forgiveness— you will have to base that forgiveness on forgiveness you have already received from God. You will not, on your own, be able to make significant change in your own life related to forgiveness. If you are not a forgiving person, you will not become one by trying harder. You will, you may become one by engaging with what Jesus prescribes, which we're going to see from the scriptures. Next week, we will address the issues that arise when we arrive at the crossroads between abuse and forgiveness. So not just someone who has wronged me, but someone who maybe has taken something from me or forced themselves upon me from a position of power to my position of weakness. Now, I give you that heads up as I did a week ago, because some of us have lived that. Some of us have had to live through that for a very long time, and you deserve the chance to decide if you want to sit in this room next week and hear me talk about that for 40 to 50 minutes. If you don't, that's fine. If you do, my commitment to you is I won't be crass, I won't use vulgar language, and I won't give explicit examples. My intention is not to, like, manipulate you emotionally next week at all. I just think the Bible has very clear, very straight answers for that situation. I don't think it's a new problem in human history, and I want to help you figure out what the Bible would say to a person, who you may be or you may not be, uh, who has had to endure abuse and figure out where do I go from here when it comes to forgiveness in my own heart. And then in our last week, we will try to shift our attitude on forgiveness away from seeing forgiveness as sort of the last step in conflict, which is, I think, how many of us think about it, and instead shift our attitude toward forgiveness being the first step into a uniquely Christian kind of freedom, that forgiveness is not just a tool that we sometimes have to reach for like a first aid kit in a relational emergency, but forgiveness is a way of life, a mindset, an attitude, a lifestyle that will lead you to engage with other people proactively differently, not just decide what to do when they hurt you differently. So let's go immediately now to Matthew 18. 
We'll begin in verse 21. One of Jesus' followers, his apprentices, a man named Peter, is going to ask Jesus a question. Jesus will answer that question. Well, first Peter will answer that question, which is kind of silly. Then Jesus will answer that question, and then Jesus will tell a story to explain what he means because his answer is kind of unbelievable. So, verse 21 of Matthew 18. Peter came to Jesus and said, he asked a question, Master, how many times must I or do I have to forgive my brother who sins against me? So that's the question. He then answers his own question, which he shouldn't have done. He says, as many as seven times? Peter's Jewish background means that he reads what's called the Talmud, which is a set of commentaries on the Old Testament, the Jewish Bible. And the Talmud says you forgive people three times. So Peter kind of does a double it and add one here, I think in an attempt to impress Jesus and the other disciples. Seven times, he asks. Jesus says in verse 22, not seven times, but 77 times. And now Peter's embarrassed a little bit because that's not what he thought Jesus was going to say. Another way, and your version of the Bible may interpret it this way, but another way to interpret what Jesus says is 70 times 7 or 490 times. We talked about last week that Jesus' intention is not to give a specific number. It's to communicate a number so large that it would be impossible for you to keep track of whether you've had to forgive someone that many times or not. In other words, Jesus intends to communicate that it's an unlimited amount. It's so much more than you would expect or that you feel that you are capable of that his intention is to knock you off balance a little here and to make you go, whoa, what does that mean and how could that possibly work? Jesus answers those questions in verse 23. He says, this is the reason why I can say that to you. Because the kingdom of heaven The thing that Jesus has brought with him, that he begins the gospel by saying, is now within arm's reach for us. He says, it is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. As the king began settling his accounts, a man who owed 10,000 talents, which is roughly the equivalent of $400 billion in our modern money, this man was brought to the king. Verse 25. Because the man was not able to repay that, just like you wouldn't be able to repay that ever in a hundred lifetimes, the king ordered the man to be sold instead, and his wife, and his children, and all of the things that they possessed, so that some repayment could be made on this huge debt of $400 billion. Then, when the slave heard the king say this, he threw himself to the ground in front of the king, and he said, be patient with me, and I will repay you everything. The king had compassion on that slave, and in response to that compassion, he released the slave, and he forgave him all of the debt. Unbelievable. I love you guys. I'm not sure I could actually forgive $400 billion of debt. I think I would think, let's, we'll forgive 399, but one of those billions would be really nice to get back. Think of what I could do with that. It would change my life. This king says, forget it. It's over. The debt is forgiven. It's done. It's free. The story goes on from there, and Jesus says that this slave leaves the, this interaction with the king where he's just been forgiven. He goes out, And he found one of his fellow slaves, a person who is a peer to him socially. And this second slave owed the first slave 100 silver coins. And so the first slave grabbed the second slave by the throat and began to choke him and said to him, pay back what you owe me. Then the second slave threw himself down and begged the first slave. This is an exact repetition of what the first slave did with the king. Same words, same activity. Throws himself down and begs the first slave saying, be patient with me and I will repay you. But unlike the king, the first slave refused. Instead, he went out and he threw the second slave into prison until that man was able to pay back his debt. When the fellow slaves, everybody else who's in town to settle their accounts with the king, when they heard what happened, they were very upset and they went and told their king everything that had taken place. And then the king called the first slave back to him and he said, evil slave, I forgave all of your debt because you begged me to do so. 
Should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed it to you? And in anger, the king turned the first slave over to the prison guards to torture him until he could repay all that he owed. Now Jesus is moving off of the narrative and looking back at Peter and the other disciples, and he says, So also our heavenly Father will do to you if each of you does not forgive your brother from your heart. So if I can summarize that, that's a lot of kind of this slave did that to this slave and the king does this and he thinks this and he feels this way. In Jesus' story, the king forgives the first slave who is in debt. Then that slave leaves that setting, encounters a second slave who he, for, he fails to forgive, and the king seems to think that the first slave's potential forgiveness of the second slave that he failed to offer should have been based on and motivated by the forgiveness that the king offered to him. And that's still kind of tricky to wrap your mind around. So what I did is drew this out for you, and I hope this will help, okay? We're going to talk at great lengths today about the three dimensions of forgiveness. This is the way the economy of mercy, God's economy, works. Here's what happens, okay? We have three characters in this story. We have a king, we have the first slave, and we have the second slave. In just a minute, Jesus is going to help us understand where we fit into this story. These people right now, though, are just kind of like allegorical. They're just sort of like fairy tale people. They don't have names. They just represent sort of the actions that they're going to take to each other. So the first action that we see is that this king offers unearned forgiveness to the first slave. The first slave all he does is beg him and say, just give me more time. He doesn't even ask to be forgiven totally. And yet the king is moved by compassion and chooses to release that slave from his debt and to set him free so that he can be a citizen again. So he's not just a slave who's stuck in this debt cycle forever and ever. Then what should have happened in response to that is the first slave should have offered the same kind of forgiveness, unearned forgiveness to the second slave. Not because the first slave is such a great guy, not because the first slave grew up in church, not because the first slave is really, really good morally and makes sure that he never lets anybody see him slip up in public, but because he has an example, because he's just lived through an experience of being forgiven. And that forgiveness is not just supposed to teach him, it's supposed to change who he is at an identity level. But of course we know in Jesus' story, it doesn't happen. That whole cool step, that great idea, what a wonderful world that would be, right? If everybody who ever encountered Jesus' forgiveness became instantly and immediately perfectly forgiving, but this is a real story about real people, told to real people by a real person in human history, and therefore, we shouldn't be surprised that it doesn't wrap up with a happy ending. It would be great if this story ended in verse 27, if Jesus simply was teaching that God is forgiving, and just like the king in the story, if you repent, then he'll forgive you, and he'll set you free, and your life will go on. But that's not really what Peter is asking. Peter has no real interest in figuring out how forgiving God is. Peter is asking Jesus, how forgiving do I have to be? Where's the line that I have to make sure that I cross so that I can make sure that I still qualify for heaven? I don't want to lose my eternal fire insurance here, so what's my premium? How many times a month do I have to forgive other people so that I can make sure that I feel really good in my conscience, in my spirit, about my standing with God? Seven, right, Jesus? Seven is enough. And Jesus says, no. And he says it with an exclamation point. No, not seven, an unlimited number of times. And then Peter goes, what? Because Peter realizes he has totally misunderstood what Jesus is saying about forgiveness, and that's why Jesus tells the story. Because he's speaking to a group of people who are looking for the limit. They would like to know what is the bare minimum that I have to do to qualify for heaven or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, whatever you want to call it. Jesus is pushing against that. He's not just answering that question, he's undermining that question. His intention is to cause these disciples who are so sure and so comfortable in themselves, so positive that they only have to forgive so many times and they'll stay on God's good side. Jesus wants to rock that misconception. He wants to jar them 
as he often does, we've talked about this before with his parables, he jabs and jabs and jabs and jabs, and then right when we're off balance, he throws the haymaker, and it lands, and we kind of go, whoa, not only is Jesus' answer different from what I expected, I think I was asking the wrong question. That's the conclusion that Jesus would like for Peter and these other disciples to reach, but it's also the conclusion that he would like for us to reach. Here's how I know that. Because the emphasis of the action, the thing Jesus is telling his disciples to do, is not based on the example of the slave. At first it sounds like it, because Jesus says, if you don't forgive from your heart, then my Father in heaven will, you can assume, throw you into some kind of jail or prison, or you'll find yourself captive to your unforgiveness. But Jesus isn't really appealing to the example of the slave. The slave is a bad example. He just shows us what not to do. Jesus calls back to the king in verse 33. If you have your Bible open, I'll I'll read it for you again really quickly, but I want you to notice this is the big idea for Jesus. This is really where all of the motivation and the inspiration for being forgiving is supposed to come from. The king asks this first unforgiving slave a question. He says, should you not have shown mercy to your fellow slave just as I showed it to you? My friends, don't miss the fact that the initial debt of $400 billion does not make the king angry. He is not emotional in his interaction with the slave when it comes time to call that debt in. The thing that makes the king angry is when the king's forgiveness to the first slave seems to have not done its job. When the first slave has interacted with the forgiveness of the king and has remained unchanged and unrepentant in his own heart. That's what leads the king to say, okay, now we have a real issue here. It's not whether or not you owe me. As Christians, we often spend a lot of time thinking about and worrying about how much we owe God, will we always owe God, could we ever pay God back. Jesus is trying to shift our understanding that it would be a better use of our time and anxious energy to be asking ourselves, when I have been forgiven by God, have I let it all the way in? Has it actually made meaningful contact with my soul? Have I been changed by the forgiveness of God? Not just let off the hook, from sort of this eternal balancing act of hell versus heaven. That's not the most important thing to consider. The most important thing to consider from Jesus' perspective is how you would answer the question the king is asking the slave. Should you not have been forgiving based on the forgiveness that I showed you? This is why Jesus can turn to his disciples in verse 35 and say, if you are not forgiving from your own heart, it is God's business. It becomes God's business. It becomes your heavenly father's business if you are not a forgiving person. Now, we talked at great lengths a week ago about the four steps that you can take if you would like to engage with forgiveness. And I knew the whole time that I preached that sermon to you that I was inviting you to participate in things that are impossible for you to do if you're not connected to the spirit of God. Today, our objective is to try to make it as clear as possible that before you take any of those four steps in your life, the starting point for you is to evaluate whether or not the forgiveness of God has made meaningful contact with you. Have you accepted forgiveness as a get-out-of-jail-free card, or have you become repentant in your spirit because you have been moved and broken by the love and forgiveness of God? The big idea, the thing that we will return to again and again today is this idea. This is my one big point, that human forgiveness is dependent on divine forgiveness. If you haven't made contact with the Spirit of God, if you don't know what it is like, you have not experienced being forgiven by God, that the life and death and resurrection of Jesus has been applied to you, if you haven't walked through that experience yet, you can't forgive anybody. You can try to fix the relationship, you can ignore what they did wrong, you can let them off the hook because of their circumstances and their background and how bad other people have treated them, but if you want to forgive in a way that maintains a biblical view of justice, which is our objective, 
to, to not just feel better, but to do what is right, you're never going to have the capacity. It's going to be much too hard for you unless you see yourself at the feet of Jesus, forgiven by him when you deserved to be thrown into jail, like this slave, to be sold, and for all that you had to be sold, that God could have some of the debt paid back that you created. So what I want to do is quickly work back through those three dimensions, but I want to plug real people in for you. And I want to help you understand that even though Jesus is telling a story about a king and a couple of slaves, he's talking about the way that you relate to God and how the way that you relate to God is supposed to shape and form the way that you relate to other people. So this will probably be obvious to you. I hope it is, but if it's not, here we go. In place of the king in the story is God the Father. Jesus makes this clear to us in verse 35 when he links the actions of the king to the heavenly father of his disciples, okay? The second person in the story in place of the first slave is anybody who's been forgiven by God. Anybody who knows beyond a shadow of a doubt, they've been in God's presence, they're aware of the debt that they owe, like the slave, they fell on their face and cried out, just give me more time, I'll get it right eventually, and God ignored that request and instead forgave the debt. That's what it means to be saved. It's not that we bargain with God and we get a little more time and we try a little harder and eventually we get to where we wish we were before and God says, great, you did it. We are pleading and asking and begging for all the wrong stuff and God just goes, none of that's gonna help. I'm gonna give you the thing that you need. I'll forgive the debt. I'll absorb the loss. I'll fix the relationship for you. I received a good question last week. This is just a short side note and I'm kind of a nerd for Bible words so this is uh, justifying me going off on a tangent for a minute. Uh, Somebody asked me last week after the sermon, when we say forgive, should we say that we forgive people or should we say we forgive actions? And it's a good question because the original language would say we would forgive an action. You would forgive the wrong itself, but language evolves all the time. And so now we say we forgive one another and it basically means the same thing. But, but I, it brought up an interesting theological perspective to me that I want to share with you. I believe that God actually has to do both. I think he has to forgive who we are and what we have done. Because we're not good people who occasionally get it wrong and therefore need God to look the other way once in a while, once a month, once a week, something like that. But we're also not bad people who can, by our own willpower, still do good things in spite of our evil nature. What we are is bad people who do bad things. So I think it's very appropriate to say both, that God forgives sins and God forgives sinners. For the sake of the diagram today, we're going to say that forgiveness is aimed at people, just so you know that. But if you think that you know more Greek than me, you might, and you're right. Afime is the Greek word for forgive, and it means you forgive an action, and that's cool. But in English, we talk about forgiving people, so we're going to speak that way today. Finally is the second slave. And this person represents anybody in your life who's not you, whom you have to forgive, probably more than once over and over again for the same stupid stuff that you keep having family meetings about and that person keeps saying, I promise this time I'm gonna do the dishes on Mondays like I told you. And then Monday comes and goes and it doesn't happen and you have to decide, am I gonna forgive or am I gonna unleash the wrath of me on this person, right? Over and over again, this is probably for you, most frequently a spouse, a child, a roommate, someone in your life that's close enough that you would like to be able to depend on them all the time, but they're a broken person like you are and so they let you down quite a bit. The primary argument that Jesus is making, if you'll just follow these arrows, it's very clear to me, is that in order for you to forgive others, something has to happen prior to that step. God has to choose to apply forgiveness to you. And he has made that available, but whether or not you've chosen to participate in it, it's a really good question to ask. In this particular story, the reason I think this is so relevant to people like you and I is because the king is very forgiving. God, if you will, is very forgiving in this story. He offers forgiveness freely. He's moved by compassion. He forgives the debt and he repairs the relationship all at once. But who uh, or, or what happens when he does that? Well, it looks like at first, you could make the argument 
that the first slave, which represents you, is repentant. He, he's, he's on the ground, he's, he's crying out, he's begging for mercy, he seems to be full of remorse. But as soon as he leaves the king's presence, he shows us what's going on in his heart, which is nothing. What looks like remorse is actually self-pity. It's him being afraid for himself. It's not, he doesn't intend to change. He doesn't even maybe understand that he's supposed to change based on this experience that he's had. That's why forgiveness has to start with God because you, even you in the presence of God, even you when you've had an encounter like this before, you have the capacity to walk away unchanged. So why would you think that without the forgiveness of God applied, you would ever have a chance in the world of being forgiving to anyone else? I think Jesus is making the argument that you wouldn't. Based on these three people in this relationship, these three dimensions of forgiveness, uh, I think we can make this argument that, that forgiveness begins with downward motion. That divine forgiveness is God applying forgiveness to us, making forgiveness available to us. This is the point of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. If you would argue or push back against or resist that this is true or necessary, you, my friend, are not a Christian. This is the basics of Christianity, that I know that I have a debt created by my own sin. It's both my identity and the product of my actions, and God has lovingly and willingly, before I ever asked him to, stepped down into creation, into time, taken on human flesh, lived a perfectly obedient human life, died a, a death as an innocent man, both as God and man, both fully innocent of ever having sinned, and therefore paid my sin debt, gave me a life that I could never live myself, and then resurrected from the dead to prove that the whole thing works, that Jesus is not just the Lord of life, but he's the Lord of life and death both. That applied to us is the downward movement of forgiveness. It's God choosing to engage and to love us and to apply his forgiveness to us. Second is the internal dimension or the inward dimension of forgiveness, And this is where you, a person who has been forgiven by God, begin to figure out what you're going to do about all the bad things other people have done to you in your life in light of God's forgiveness to you. So this is not you forgiving yourself. This is still you forgiving another person who has wronged you. This is essentially the step where the slave quit participating. He refused to allow the forgiveness of the king to reach down into the parts of him that were bitter and angry and wounded based on what other people had done. Inward forgiveness is where you and I find a way to forgive whoever has offended or hurt us emotionally and mentally. We change our mind and we change our spirit. And I say we change, we participate in that change by being willing for those things to happen. God is the one who actually does the work. And then finally is outward or horizontal forgiveness. And this is only possible if the inward work has been done, which is only possible if God has applied his forgiveness downward from him to us. Outward forgiveness is the point where we offer to reconcile the relationship to the other person under certain circumstances, which is where we're going to go next week. So I'm not going to preach that sermon to you today, but we're going to talk at great lengths about how do we know how to re-engage with a person when maybe they intend to hurt us as soon as possible all over again. What do we do? How do we, what's our responsibility? We'll go there. The point for today is that the horizontal element of forgiveness depends on the internal element of forgiveness, which depends on the vertical element of forgiveness, which is how I can make the point that I made to you earlier, that human forgiveness is dependent upon divine forgiveness. So what does all of that really mean? That's fine, right? That's cool, and you maybe drew some arrows in your Bible. Good for you, that's great. But what do we actually do about this? When someone goes out of their way to harm us, to hurt us, to take advantage of us, when someone accidentally acts out of their own pain or their own past and they end up wounding us along the way, what do we do with that stuff? We said a week ago that it's not God's will that we ignore it. It's not his intention that we just look the other way and act like it didn't happen. We need to call it to account. Christians are people of justice. 
And in order for justice to be done, right must be called right and wrong must be called wrong. And we can't treat a wrong like it's a right because we're scared of the conflict that would happen if we told the truth. So there's a step to take. There are things that I think God expects us to do that he will empower us to be able to do. I think the beginning of it all is we have to consciously, willingly, by choice, base our understanding of forgiveness and our intention to forgive someone else on the forgiveness that God has given us. Now, your imagination is probably different from mine. My imagination is vivid. I think in pictures a lot of times, almost like a comic strip running through my brain constantly. If you've ever been in a one-on-one meeting with me, I often go to the whiteboard at a certain point because it's just easier for me to draw what I'm thinking than to try to explain it to you in words. And so the way that I visualize this is I see myself almost like in a dark room or a dark place without walls, pitch black. And there's this column of light that's coming down from somewhere. Like uh, you can think of a cloud, whatever you think heaven is, okay? It's not a cloud, but you can think of it that way. Like a big spotlight or the tractor beam of a UFO and it's just on me. And I'm on my knees and I'm repentant. And I'm in this sense of this light place because God is aiming his forgiveness at me. And what I wanna do is I wanna make sure that as I take the steps of forgiveness in my life, I don't ever step outside of that circle of light. Now, what I'm not saying is is that there's a way to forgive that disqualifies my salvation and God won't love me. What I'm saying is I need to tell myself that 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 circle of light is is both God's forgiveness aimed at me, but it kind of functions as a safety net. Like as long as I'm still thinking about God's grace, thinking about God's mercy, spending most of my mental time and energy remembering what I owed God and what he forgave of me, it's going to be much safer for me to try to participate in forgiving other people because it's going to guard me from just sprinting away from what God did being unchanged and just applying my own moral will, my own desire to be right, my own kind of performative good works, which is never really going to help another person. Because all it's going to do is turn this back into a weird transaction where now I've made this valiant, noble gesture of forgiveness and they've thrown it back in my face and what's that going to make me? Doubly as bitter as I was before. Because it's it's me basing my understanding of forgiveness on another person's remorse. That's what I think happens. We can say together that it's true that human forgiveness is dependent upon divine forgiveness, but the way that we often act is that human forgiveness is dependent upon human remorse. Many of us live as if, maybe you've never even thought about this before, but I bet it's true for a lot of us. We live as if we are not required to forgive or even begin that process until someone has said that they're sorry. It's probably the way your parents taught you. They got you and your brother and sister back into the living room after you guys punched each other in the face or your brother threw a plate at your head or whatever and they said, tell your sister you're sorry. And your brother goes, I'm sorry. And you say, tell your sister you for, your, or whoever that you've forgiven. You say, I forgive you. And we show this cause and effect. We show this call and response. Now, in the relationship, sure, the person who was wrong should go first to make that right. That's responsibility in play. But from an inward perspective, my friends, we can't wait around on the people who have hurt us to say they're sorry. That keeps them in emotional power over us. That keeps us locked in a cage where how angry we are at them and what they did wrong to us and how they've made us feel is still driving our emotions and therefore is still driving our decision making. You can move away from your hometown. You can block your parents on every social media account. You can delete the number of that ex that hurt you so bad when you broke up. But if you are still angry and bitter at them, you still have a relationship with them. You are maintaining and feeding that negative relationship. You are laying wood on that fire every time that you think about them, that you see someone in the grocery store who wears the hat they used to wear, or you smell her perfume in the mall, or a holiday comes and you have to face the fact that that relationship is broken and you're not going to reach out to those parents or grandparents or whoever that you would like to. When we don't do the work of forgiveness, we're hurting ourselves 
and we're maintaining a broken relationship that could be healed, but the healing work is something that we have to do inside. And we have to do it based on and centered on the work of forgiveness that God has given to us. In the story, the king's forgiveness should have done its work. It should have changed the first slave to become the kind of person who could forgive the second slave, who might not even mention the debt to him ever again if they pass each other in the temple or the marketplace or on their way to dropping their kids off at school or whatever. But we know that that didn't happen because as soon as the first slave encounters this person who owes him a debt, he doesn't just say, hey, we need to get together sometime. Things have been tight on my end. I just got this great release of debt, but I'm really trying to figure out my finances. I don't want to go back into debt, and I could use that couple hundred silver coins that you owed me if we could kind of work out a payment plan whatever that would be fine that would be fair but instead as soon as he sees this person before he said a word his fingers are around this guy's neck and he's attacking because there's still anger in his heart there's still remorse there's still a desire to seek vengeance he believes the lie that vengeance always tells us that if you would just be violent enough if you would be mean enough if you would stay angry long enough then you can force someone else to repay that debt my friends that's how a person who has been abused becomes an abuser we take on the tactics that we learned from the person who hurt us worse than anybody else. And it's exactly the story of the Israelite people in the Old Testament. I don't have time to read it to you today, but if you were to read the book of Exodus, you would see a people who have been beaten down and oppressed by those who have power over them. They're set free, and as soon as they have the opportunity to make their own rules, they take on the exact persona of, of their slave masters in Egypt. The reason that God has to tug of war with the people of Israel so frequently in the Old Testament is because they keep learning how to live from other broken people. And that's our story too. Who raised us, who we are around, our first relationships, our marriage, our kids, our boss, these people shape and form us. And if we're trying to base our understanding of forgiveness, which I think is very important and we have to figure out as Christians, on the way other people have taught us to do it, we're gonna get it wrong. I'm trying to challenge that idea enough to the point that maybe you begin to agree with me today that you've got some exploring to do of how Jesus saved you and what forgiveness cost him and how you can base your understanding of human forgiveness on that. We believe that human forgiveness depends totally on divine forgiveness and not that human forgiveness depends on human remorse. I want to ask you a question and have you ask yourself this question because I'm, I'm speaking kind of in ideal terms today. I have been for two weeks. Ideally, all Christians would be like this. Ideally, all churches would be like this, right? You guys have heard in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, one of Jesus' most famous sayings, he says, when somebody wants to hit you on one side of the face, what do you do? Go, here's the other one. You want to do it again? Now, wouldn't it be wonderful if we lived in a world where as soon as you turn the other cheek, that person with their balled up fist went, and they started to cry, and they hit their knees, and they went, no one has ever in my life just opened themselves to me the way that you did. Who are you? What do you believe about eternity? How can I know your God? Do you have a Bible I can start reading right now? I mean, wouldn't that be great? But it's not the case. What's actually likely to happen in that situation is you go, you want the other one, and before the words even come out of your mouth, two of your teeth are flying out of your face, right? And then that person's coming back for that first cheek again, and will continue to do that as long as you offer your face to them. That doesn't sound good. That's not why you prayed a prayer to be saved from your sin is so people could beat you in the face in Jesus' name. Not at all. No one wants that situation to happen. But the point is this. Again and again when Jesus teaches about forgiveness, about relationships, he calls us to take steps that don't make any sense. He calls us to take steps that if we're, if we're logical, we can assume and expect we'll wind up getting hurt again or maybe even hurt worse. This is why forgiveness has to be based on divine forgiveness is because God wants to give you access to a well of life and identity and being and self that is so deep in him that you don't have to count the cost of that stuff anymore. 
That's the question Peter is asking in verse 21. The way this whole conversation starts is Peter is thinking to himself, surely God does not intend for me in following Jesus' teaching to lose everything? Surely Jesus does not intend for me to get hurt? He wouldn't want me to put myself in danger. He wouldn't want my kids to suffer. He wouldn't want me to have to lose my savings or my career or embarrass myself in front of my peers or, or offend my family. He wouldn't want me to do that, right? So, Jesus, so Peter's going, I get that we want to forgive us. Like, that's good, Jesus. We want to forgive a certain amount. Let's do that together. Let's go with seven. Seven's like the number of perfection in Hebrew numerology. So that's, that's cool, right? Let's do that. And Jesus' response to him is scary. It's no, Peter, seven wouldn't be anywhere close to enough. 77 or 490 or some number that you don't have enough paper to keep track of on would be a better understanding of the way that we're going to forgive. My friends, some of us, when we became Christians, made peace with this kind of life that would follow Jesus into any circumstance. And the longer we've become Christians, the more we have distanced ourselves from that. We wrongly use the word radical for people who would actually follow Jesus anywhere that he leads them to do anything he would say. That isn't radical. That's the basics for Christianity. Now, I'm not here to make you feel bad. What I'm trying to help you understand is probably part of your reticence, part of your resistance to go with God is connected to how disconnected you are to him personally. Jesus isn't asking you to just do this of your own willpower. If you're looking around you and you're going, I know what God wants me to do and I could never do it. It would cost me too much and it would hurt too bad. Then that's a way that you are looking in the spiritual mirror. You are learning about yourself that you are not all that connected to God because God doesn't want you to just grit your teeth and clench your hands and try as hard as you can. His intention, according to his own teaching, is for his yoke to be light on you. His yoke isn't going to change. You're the one who will have to change. Disciplines are how we grow. Disciplines are how we become stronger. This repetitive nature of continuing to do a thing, even when it doesn't feel like it's working and it's irritating and it's getting in the way of other stuff that we'd really prefer to do, that's how you get stronger in the gym. That's how a literal yoke becomes light, is you get yoked, if you know what I'm saying, to the point that you can toss that thing around. Spiritually, this is Jesus' intention for you. He doesn't want you to be this like scrawny, inebriated Christian at 80 years old who never grew from like toddlerhood in Christian life. He wants you to do hard stuff with him by the power of the Holy Spirit so that when your life gets hard, you go, we're going to be fine. It's not easy. It doesn't stop hurting. It doesn't make you go, oh, I can just walk through life and nothing bothers me. The Apostle Paul himself prayed repeatedly that God would heal this physical disability that he had again and again and again. And Jesus said, no, you're just going to deal with it. But Peter, see, Paul gained the capacity to deal with that. You can gain the capacity to deal with what is going to happen in your life that's going to be challenging. And most of what's going to happen in your life that's going to be challenging is people are going to hurt you bad, really bad. And it's going to be people that are close to you who you thought could never do it, and it's going to make you question yourself. What's wrong with me that would let someone take advantage of me like this? It's going to make you question relationships. Do I ever want to get close to anybody like that ever again? And it might make you question God. How and why could God ever allow something like this into my life? If our eyes are not set on the forgiveness of Jesus as the starting point for our understanding of forgiveness, we're not going to get the answers to those questions that we want. But in looking at Jesus' example and understanding that even now, as he sits at the Father's side, his arms and his feet are still scarred, my friends. He is still wounded. It demonstrates to us that he has the capacity to go with us through this thing, to walk alongside of us. And if we will base our understanding of forgiveness on himself then we will eventually reach a point where we become the kind of people who can offer this kind of forgiveness. So here's what I want to do to finish today. I want to read you a poem. 
This is a poem written by a guy named C.S. Lewis. You've heard of the Chronicles of Narnia, I'm sure. He wrote that and a lot of other things. But he also wrote a handful of short poems. He did this as kind of a spiritual practice in his own life as a way to connect with God and and turn his writing toward uh, worship of God. If you ever want to read his poems, I think this is funny. Uh, His collection of poems is a book that's called Poems. So it's easy to find. uh, Poems by C.S. Lewis. In that book, he wrote this uh, between 60 and 100 years ago. Um, And what I want to do as I read this to you is I want to just invite you to process it however you need to. So if you want to close your eyes and just listen to the words, that's great. It's very vivid. The imagery is very strong. If you want to read it on the screen behind me, that's awesome too. If you want to do both and listen, whatever you want to do, but this is my hope in preparing this and praying about this is that this poem would help either introduce you or reintroduce you to the love of God because that's key here. If we have a small view of the love of God, we're not going to do any of this stuff, and this whole forgiveness as a discipline thing is just going to be another brick in our backpack that weighs us down and makes us feel like stupid, foolish people that are never going to get Christianity right. But if you can open your heart to really look directly at the love of God, you'll find that it empowers you to begin to change. Here's what C.S. Lewis wrote. This poem is called Loves as Warm as Tears. Loves as Warm as Tears. Love is tears, pressure within the brain, tension at the throat, deluge, weeks of rain, haystacks afloat, featureless seas between hedges where once was green. Love's as fierce as fire, love is fire. All sorts, infernal heat fused with greed and pride, lyric desire, sharp sweet, laughing, even when denied, and that heavenly flame whence all loves come. Loves as warm, excuse me, loves as fresh as spring. Love is spring. Birdsong in the air, cool smells in a wood, whispering, dare, dare, to sap, to blood, saying ease, safety, rest are good, not best. Loves as hard as nails. Love is nails. Blunt, thick, hammered through the medial nerves of one who, having made us, knew the thing he had done. Seeing with all that is, our cross and his. My friends, loving another person will sometimes feel like blunt, thick nails driven through your medial nerves. It will feel like looking at a cross and knowing what it's going to cost you to forgive another person. This is a uniquely Christian discipline. This is the one thing that if we don't do, we probably shouldn't claim Christ. We should claim to be good. We should claim to try hard. We should claim to be moral. We should claim conservative family values, whatever we want. But if we refuse to do the work of forgiveness, we will not follow our rabbi very far. This was his finish line. It was the target that he had in his mind and in his heart from the day that he was born. He knew he was headed to that hill to, to lay there on the ground as his Roman oppressors drove nails through his wrists and ankles And as he hung there in agony, suffocating, that's how you die on a cross. You don't bleed out. Your lungs fill with fluid, and eventually you can't push against those nails hard enough to get another breath, and you just drown in your own fluids. And he did that for us, because that's what we deserve, because that's divine forgiveness. And out of that reality, if you will sit with that and chew on that and just stew in that for a while, you will find that your shriveled soul will grow like the Grinch's heart, right? That's what I think about this time of year. With, with exposure to graciousness and mercy, that's real. That's how it works. 
So don't spend your time convincing yourself that you should be doing more. Don't spend your time beating yourself up for all these people that you wish you would have forgiven. Spend your time dwelling on the love of God for you. If you will do that, if you will behold God's face with the veil of sin and self removed and be with him and know him and speak to him and listen to him, he will change you and he will grow you. And with time, you will become the kind of person who, like Jesus, can say to whoever, wherever, whenever, do your worst, I'll be okay, and I'll do my best to forgive you. That's my prayer for you, and I'd like to pray that now. Father, thank you for your word and for a chance together, collectively today, to be in your word. I pray that you would challenge us. Uh, Few things, God, are harder for me than something like forgiveness that feels so abstract. What do I actually do? When do I do it? How can I know if I've done it right or for long enough or well enough? And I pray, God, that you'd set us free from those kinds of questions right now. That instead of turning this into some measurable task that we have to complete or else, that you would just allow us the freedom, the freedom that our breakneck, hectic lives almost never allows us to just look at you, to turn our eyes upon you, Jesus, to look full in your wonderful face and to let the world fade for just a little while. I pray, God, that you would work in our hearts. It is my belief and my hope that working through forgiveness is uniquely able to transform a church like this. And so that's what I ask of you, God. I ask that however long it takes, if it's years or decades, that we would become a people who are known for how unbelievably forgiving we are. We love you and we trust you to do this work in us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand.